You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. In the insurance media, we talk about classes of new carriers being formed in mass flowerings of capitalism after the bursting of prolonged soft markets. But we never apply this term to the birth of intermediaries. This is because the distribution side of our industry tends to renew itself more organically and less in dramatic waves. Except that right now, the conditions are perfect for a mass expansion in this space. The consolidation of Marsh McLennan and JLT and the prospects of Aon and Willis coming together are providing a once-in-a-lifetime strategic backdrop for independents that can attract the right talent. A sustained hard market has taken hold in core lines of business, giving a second boost, and market reforms in hubs such as London are giving a chance for operational efficiencies and competitive advantages to be built into new businesses from day one. Add to this record low borrowing costs, high valuations, and a growing view from the investor community that broking houses have more in common with annuities than venture capital investments, and you have a heady cocktail. Into this mix, I welcome Mike Reynolds, the new CEO of One Global, a London wholesaler born of the merger between SSL and Endeavour and fueled by an investment from JC Flowers. Mike has had a very long career in the insurance business and most recently ran reinsurance broker JLT Re. In this interview, we learn about One Global's major worldwide plans and Mike's vision of how to build a global challenger in the wholesale specialty and reinsurance space. Mike is good company, so I think you'll enjoy spending the next half an hour or so with him. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you could be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. So, Mike, what's the long-term plan for One Global? Yeah, great. Thank you, Mark. So um, what's the long-term plan for One Global? We are obviously going to respect our roots in the uh, wholesale business and also as a major marine producer into the London market. But our long-term plan really is to build out a global specialty and reinsurance broker, really operating in all the major markets around the world. So we've already started to make some progress on that, actually. We'll be making some announcements uh, very, very soon in Asia. So that will be exciting. And I can't give you a preview of that, unfortunately, but it will be up and coming in the next uh, week or two. We're already on the ground in the US, but only with a specialized MGA in the aviation space and a specialized MGA set up for Latin American business out of Miami. And then we already have um, offices on the ground in Greece and Cyprus. 
which are strong marine offerings and businesses that are doing very, very well. So we'll continue to build out those operations, but also to invest in, certainly in all the major markets around the world, to build a global specialty and reinsurance business. So that's the strategy in a nutshell. So staying at the wholesale end of, of insurance and sticking around the main hubs at which those places are transacted or from where they're produced? Yes, I would say in the main, that's correct. So, you know, we certainly would not see ourselves going on the ground in North America, for instance, and eating the lunch of our prestigious client base. We would not want to do that. So we'll remain a wholesale broker. I would say apart from, you know, one or two specialty lines like aviation, where really those brokers don't have a presence on the ground, for instance. But I do think we'll do some more direct specialty type business in Asia and some locations like that. But in the main, yes, absolutely respecting our wholesale routes for sure. You'd only go for direct specialty where there really isn't much of a retail offering locally. I think um, I would say that even if there is a direct retail offering locally, if we don't service it on a wholesale basis, then we may look at setting up some specialty businesses in those locations. And we certainly feel that we can equip ourselves to compete with the best of the brokers out there. So that would be the strategy. So it's more about the line of business than it is about the way you access it. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, correct. And in terms of those global hubs, the sort of global wholesale hubs in Asia, are we talking about sort of Singapore and Hong Kong or both? And then places like Bermuda and New York, are those the sort of places we're talking about? Yeah, no, absolutely, Mark. You know, we've obviously sat down and started to do our strategic planning and a good place to start is obviously looking at those main hubs uh, for the insurance and reinsurance markets. So certainly in Asia, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, critically important. We are already obviously um, strong on the ground in London. Uh, we have a presence in the US, but I do think places like New York, ultimately, we probably will need to direct our attentions to. And certainly, you know, Bermuda, Dubai, markets like those, critically important to our strategy as well. So as we go forward, you will see, I think, some announcements around pretty much all of those places, plans in train to roll out really on a global basis. This is quite a big investment. What about your capital backers? What sort of time frame are they looking at? How long term is that? Yeah, good question. So Obviously, we're uh, backed by uh, JC Flowers, so we're really pleased with the strength of our backing and really pleased that they're prepared to step up to the plate to invest in a business like this. They've been very, very supportive, and I'm sure will continue to be supportive. But look, you know, what I'd stress, Mark, is that it's incumbent on us as a management team to build a business for the long term. And so what I'm very, very focused on and what our team, our executive team, is very focused on is building out a great global specialty in reinsurance business that will endure for the long term and will be capable of retaining the great talent that we have, attracting great talent to the organization and serving our clients in a fantastic way. So to me, it's much more about that. Capital backing is important, but it can come and go. We need to build a business for the long term and that's what we're very focused on. So really, it's not necessary material. You could be like many brokers that have had um, this kind of backing that as you grow, you get different backers and, and different consortia come and go, but the business remains and continues to grow. Yeah, absolutely correct. And I mean, you know, that is no prediction of what will happen in the future. I think it's just to say to you, having been sort of two and a half months in the chair, to my mind, the capital backing, I just put to one side. They're very supportive. We're very, very comfortable and very happy with the backing of JCF, but we're trying to build a business for the long term and that's what we're really focused on. And what sort of scale 
do you feel you need to be targeting to be a, a long-term viable global wholesale reinsurance specialty broker? <laughs> um, well, I don't see any reason why in this particular market we couldn't multiply ourselves by a decent number, and that could be you know four or five times our existing size. But look, who knows? Again, it's early days. There's a lot going on in the marketplace. There was a lot going on in the marketplace before COVID came along. And now you layer all of that in on top and you find that the market is very, very challenged in a lot of different lines of business. And so, you know, we really feel that that's an opportunity for us to step up and show what we can do to our client base. And then when it comes to people, lots going on in the market, as you well know, around people as well. You know, given all the sort of mega mergers that have been going on and the refinancing of different businesses and mergers and acquisitions, just lots and lots of transition. And again, we just feel that that creates a lot of opportunity for us going forward. So on that, would you just be looking at an organic play to pick up, obviously, a lot of the talent that's going to be dislodged by all this large-scale broking M&A activity? Is it going to be sort of a hiring bonanza as that talent gets dislodged? <laughs> well, it's a great term, hiring bonanza. I mean, look, I would say to you, Mark, that most of our growth will come from the organic side. We have a tremendous amount of interest already. Lots and lots of conversations going on. Lots and lots of interesting people who are talking to us. But we would not shy away from doing some niche M&A deals in certain lines of business or certain geographies where we feel that that would bring something to the, the overall offering. But I would stress, I think, that most of the growth that you will see will be organic. And we have the backing from JCF to get on and do that. We have the interest from the marketplace in terms of talent who want to join us. And I think we'll bring those strands together and grow organically, I think, very successfully. So just sort of limited M&A where it's very niche, where someone might have their own small business and you're just bringing them into the team and you have to do it via acquisition, that kind of thing. That kind of thing, yes. Look, I just don't see anything at the moment out there that would be transformative. But we, Jonathan and I, Jonathan is the chairman, myself, have been through, I think, a hell of a lot of M&A over the years through our history at Aon and at JLT. And so I think we know what looks opportune and what does not look opportune. And we'll be very selective, but I do think you're absolutely right. Where we find something that is of interest, that brings us a new niche specialty capability or a new geography with the right people, like-minded people who fit in with our culture and who can service our client base well, then we certainly take a look at those for sure. You've mentioned, obviously, specialist lines like aviation and marine, where you're strong. What other lines are you particularly interested in expanding into? Well, look, I mean, I, I think without sort of listing all the sort of specialty areas, they would be the more generic specialty areas. So energy, financial lines, political risk, areas like that, and also reinsurance. And I'd almost classify that as a specialty niche as well, if you like, um, because there's just in this particular market, I think, as you well know, there's quite a lot of crossover, I think, in terms of the insurance and the reinsurance market, the interplay through MGAs, et cetera, whereby we can provide real solutions to our clients as well. So I think it would be, you know, those traditional specialty lines of business, really. As you say, very strong in the marine space, already got a bit a start in the, uh, in the aviation area, albeit that's a fairly challenged business right now. But, you know, those traditional lines, energy, financial lines, political risk, trade, credit, A&H, different lines um, such as those. So you mentioned about um, reinsurance. Obviously, you've just made a big hire in uh, the direct and facultative world. Any ambitions in the treaty space? And is it right to assume that if you were getting into the reinsurance, it's, it's as reinsurance interacts with the specialty classes that you're 
you're strong in? I think you've put the question perfectly, actually. So, you know, I think the um, DNF capability for us was critically important. So we're very pleased to bring Vanessa on board to deal with all of that. Obviously, I worked with Vanessa in the past, so I'm very familiar with her capabilities and, and we're very excited about that hire. Look, I think, um, to my mind, the treaty reinsurance space is, if you like, ultra consolidated now. And I think in my time at JLT Re, I've sort of seen various lines of business or niche areas where I think an innovative smaller broker can really bring differentiated solutions to clients. So what we're not going to do is go out and try to take on the, the major reinsurance brokers around the world. But I think just as you put it there, where we can have a, a sort of interplay between MGAs, the insurance market, the reinsurance market, or where we can bring something specific and of value to clients in certain lines of business, you know, we'll target those areas. But we'll be quite selective in doing that. Um, but certainly treaty reinsurance is not off limits for us, for sure. Now to talk a bit more about the culture of the kind of business you're trying to build. You mentioned about obviously when you're looking to hire or buy, you're looking to buy people who are going to fit in with the way that you want to be doing business. So what is that? Could you articulate that way that you want One Global to be as a culture? Yeah, I'll give it a go. So look, we think that there are lots of like-minded brokers out there who really want the opportunity to service their client base in a much more personalized way. Okay through great client service and really having the opportunity to work for an organization that understands the value of great talent and respects that talent and doesn't treat them as a commodity play in the marketplace. So these people are of a level where they really don't want to be pushed and pulled around the place. They really want to feel that they're part of an organization that backs them and enables them to get on and service their client base in the best way possible. So I think, you know, creating a business that really gives the opportunity to people to get out there and enjoy servicing their client base, work with like-minded people, focus on great client service, and really focus on building our business together rather than many of the organizations that we see around us and shrinking their way to greatness. So I think we have a very strong story to tell on that side of things. I think just to further reiterate on the client side, we don't want clients to feel like they're a commodity either. Clients are very, very important to us, and we want to make sure that we service our clients um, properly and in a robust manner. So I think there's an opportunity to do that. Sometimes the interests of clients get lost in some of the bigger brokers, and we really feel that we can bring a more personalized service to our client base as we go forward. How do you avoid, we bring in, obviously, you attract particularly talented brokers and presumably ones that also bring accounts with them. How do you get them all to play nicely together rather than be a sort of group of mavericks that you are the sort of centralized, uh, you know, repository for? And how do you get them to become a team and feel like they're brought into something bigger than just a place where they can bring their work? Yeah, great question. <laughs> so look, I mean, I, I think um, the only way really to do that, Mark, is to have an organization that has a high degree of respect for the talent that is part of the organization. And so if you treat them like a commodity, I think they're going to treat you like a commodity here today, gone tomorrow. If you treat them with respect and if you are open and transparent in terms of what you're trying to do, if you involve them, I think, in building out the business and the excitement that's involved in building the business, all of those things, I think, go to retaining great talent in the organization. And look, you know, I think we've all seen in the marketplace mistakes that have been made around that. 
And you've also seen some great companies that have done very well around retaining their talent. So it's not impossible to do. It is, to my mind, pretty simple. It's all about trust. It's all about respect and allowing your people to get on and service their client base in an appropriate manner. Well, Mike, you've had a really successful career at larger brokers. So now that you've sort of touched upon this earlier in one of your earlier answers, but what are those main differences between working at a large broking operation and a small one, do you think? Yeah, good question. So yeah, larger brokers, okay. I mean, I suppose you would say Aon and JLT were larger brokers. But I think when you look at JLT Re, for instance, when I first picked up the role, given our competition in the marketplace, we were relatively small. Now, we did manage to build and grow and get ourselves to the position of being the number three broker in the marketplace. But even at that level, we were a tiny proportion of Marsh and Aon's revenues in the reinsurance space. And we were sort of 700 people. I mean, you know, I, I think JLT Re has taught me a lot around how to build out from a small base and try to build the organization for the benefit of clients and the benefit of our people. And, you know, really there again, we didn't try to be all things to all people. We didn't try to compete with the big boys on every line of business. We picked the areas where we felt we could make a real difference. And in that way, we were successful in building the organization. And I think bringing those learnings to One Global and doing exactly that, picking the the areas where we think we can make a difference to clients and getting on and investing heavily in those areas and building out an offering that really ups the game, I think, in those particular lines of business is the way to go. So, and look, you know, (laughs) I think you also learn a lot about what to do and what not to do in large organizations. And, you know, they do some things very, very well and they do other things pretty poorly. So all you can do really is take the experience of that forward and try to apply it for the benefit of our people and our clients as we go forward. One last question on culture before we move on. Obviously, One Global's only just come into existence via rebranding exercise, and, and it's coincided with you coming and taking over. So it's the product of SSL and Endeavor. How do you start building a, a positive culture out of two businesses? And presumably because of your time at Aon and also JLT, you did have Towers Watson Re as part of an acquisition there. How do you get everyone to rally around this new flag that you've got? Look, I think, um, as you've observed, Funnily enough, I've probably spent most of my career in the midst of a merger in one way or the other, having started out at Alexander and Alexander and then gone to Aon through the period where they were just acquiring and acquiring and acquiring. And then uh, on to Ace, where they were in the midst of the combined acquisition and then on to JLT, where, as you quite rightly pointed out, the Towers Watson acquisition. So I almost feel like this is a normal part of my day as to how you um, get people to play nicely in the sandbox and try to merge things together. What I would say is that you'd be surprised, I think, how much of that integration has already been done with the SSL and Endeavor side. Obviously, you've seen our rebranding, which we came out with on the 1st of June, which we're absolutely thrilled about. And we have real backing from our people in relation to that. So everybody's getting behind the flag. Everybody is interested in having one culture going forward rather than two separate cultures. But I have to say, Mark, I think a lot of the work, to be honest, has been done. And we're at the point now where we're all marching together, we're all looking forward, and we're looking to build the business for the benefit of our clients. You're building a global business, but let's say if we looked at your business today and for the foreseeable future, you'd say it's a London-based wholesaler. If I was a journalist describing you and using looking for a three-word prefix, I'd say London-based wholesaler, one global. So as a London-based business, The health of the London market is vital to your business. There's been a huge amount of work going on the last five years. Is London becoming a more attractive and efficient place to do business? 
I think it is marked slowly. Certainly until pre the COVID crisis, I think things were starting to change for the positive on a slow basis, okay? COVID-19 has been very interesting because I actually think it's probably accelerated the thinking of many, many different firms in terms of IT, in terms of premises, in terms of how we interact and work together in the market. It's obviously having an effect on the thinking at Lloyd's. The management team there are being extremely good about keeping us all up to date on their thoughts on that. But look, I think London was on a path to becoming more efficient and changing, but it was too slow, quite frankly. It was too slow. So, you know, hopefully this will accelerate things. And I think when it comes to electronic trading, I mean, I think it's been proven without doubt that even though everybody's not on one system, that, you know, everybody's um, systems and people and personnel were able to continue to interact, get business placed, get claims paid and bring a very good level of client service to our client base at a, a time of particular stress to a lot of them. So, you know, hopefully, as I say, that will accelerate the thinking around the marketplace and give us a little bit of a boost in moving London forward to more efficiency. The underwriting room at Lloyd's has been closed for quite a few months now without any big problems. There's a plan to tentatively reopen it in September. Do you think we should bother going back? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm sort of... Um, Listen to a lot of people in the marketplace who would give the view that the underwriting room has been closed, just leave it closed. I'm not really a subscriber to that one. To my mind, I think face-to-face broking is important. We've certainly learned over the past few months that it's much easier for an underwriter to say no from behind their Zoom screen or their Microsoft Teams screen than it is when there's a face-to-face discussion. And look, I also think that face-to-face Discussions are important in the marketplace in terms of new business production, new opportunities, cross-population of ideas, things like that. So to my mind, I don't think the answer is to close it completely. But I do think now that we have leapfrogged forward in terms of how we've managed to deal with each other, the brokers, the underwriters, managing agents and, and others in the marketplace, that we should not allow ourselves to regress back too far either. And so I'm very interested in the updates coming out of Bruce and John's team at Lloyd's. I do think they seem to be thinking about it in the right way, but I wouldn't be a subscriber to doing away completely with the face-to-face broking, no. But everyone's got offices within a few hundred uh, yards or meters of each other in London anyway. Do they need to meet in another room? Could they not just be popping into each other's offices to make sure to get deals done? And, and also, presumably, when you mentioned about new business, new business production, new ideas, generally, those are things that you don't do at the box because you don't want anyone else to be hearing about. So do you think <laughs> we, we could live without the room or not? Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, on the new business thing, I was sort of trying to make a separate point, which is yeah. more just about face-to-face interaction in the marketplace okay and and you're quite right you can do that in any location but again i do think lloyd's provides a focal point in relation to broking risk there are established procedures etc as to how people get on and do those things so to my mind i just wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you like i think reform is necessary and the covid situation has certainly kicked us forward in terms of that. But to my mind, I still think face-to-face broking is important. And I do think that the Lloyd's underwriting room has a part to play in that and will continue to have. Lloyd's published a fantastic blueprint with many, many things. Obviously, it's been it's honed down to main priorities of just three, three priorities this year. It's a very large document. And obviously, it will take a long time to work through all of those uh, different proposals in, contained in the blueprint. Which part of the blueprint are you most looking forward to seeing implemented? 
Look, I think all of it is critically important in terms of implementation. I do think the more difficult part, of course, is going to be the automation and getting that right. And that has proved to be a huge challenge over the years. As you well know, lots of failed efforts with that. I do think we're at an inflection point now in terms of technology and in terms of people's attitude and use of technology, whereby I do think we we should have the opportunity now to just finally, I think, put the nail in that coffin and allow electronic trading on a sustained basis across the market. So I do think that's critically important. But actually, the most important thing that I think in relation to uh, Lloyd's pronouncements is really around the culture issues. And so we've come through, I think, a a sort of inflection period for a lot of people in life. And a lot of people have really started to sit back and think about things, you know, whether it's... um, Uh, racism or sexism or various issues like that that have plagued our marketplace for years and years. And I'm really pleased to see the push from the current management team at Lloyd's to deal with those cultural issues. So to my mind, the business issues, the blueprint, all of that stuff is really good stuff. It will take a while to implement. I do think we're at a point where we can actually get that done now. There's real support in the marketplace for Lloyd's in getting that done. But I think the thing that's going to be more difficult to change is the cultural side of things. And I think it's the one that's critically important to change. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but you've mentioned it now. So what about things like we've had Black Lives Matter, we've had the apology for historical role in slave trading from Lloyd's. What can you do now as a business leader to carry that baton on forward within your own organizations? Yeah, I mean, look, we have had all of those things and and they're critically important issues for which I think every organization needs to focus on right now. It's about leading from the front. It's about trying to change the culture in the marketplace a little bit. And Lloyd's have stepped up, I think, and really pushed forward and tried to do that. I think it's not lost on any person in our organization that all of these issues need addressing in the marketplace as well. And I do think that people over the past few months have had a little bit of time to sit back and think about that. And what I would say is it's going to be about leading from the front in terms of those issues as a management team, and we will certainly do that. But from talking to certainly our employees, there's a willingness there now just to change things and move forward. So that to me, you can talk about all the business issues, the premium flows and the money and everything else, but that is the harder issue to change. And to my mind, it's the issue that would make a real difference to London as a marketplace and to Lloyd's as a marketplace. And I'm very, very hopeful now that we can push on and, and uh, achieve something in that space. We've been talking a bit about automation, some automation more of process, but we've seen recently attempts to automate underwriting initiatives. And I suppose by association, if you're automating underwriting, you're partly automating some of the broking that provokes that underwriting. What do you think the Lloyd's uh, subscription market's going to look like in about 10 years' time if all these initiatives bear a lot of fruit? I think, first of all, we welcome automation and we do think that the good brokers will figure out a way to utilize automation for the benefit of their clients. So to us, it doesn't scare us at all. How do I think the subscription market will look in relation to that? I think ultimately you will see a lot more automation of risk and risk matching done without intervention of underwriters or brokers, for sure. But again, all of those things, I think, just bring an opportunity for us to bring something different to our client base. Whether it's removing frictional costs from the system, whether it's removing the processing that goes on in different brokers, you know, a wholesale broker, a retail broker, an underwriter, all the same things being processed in different ways and different systems. All of those things, I think, are for the benefit of our clients. And so 
We welcome automation. We do think it's going to change the way business is done in the marketplace. To my mind, smart brokers will step up and figure out how to bring that to their client base for the benefit of their clients. Great. I want to ask you just a quick question about InsureTech. I've been talking about and writing about InsureTech for the last four or five years, and, and probably the poster child of that whole movement has been Lemonade, which has just had an IPO of the sort that we haven't seen since the dot-com boom, where we have an IPO and then you have a 100% share price gain on the first day of trading, which really hasn't been seen for 20 years. It really seems to have brought a lot of excitement from the investor community and probably the retail investor community. Will you be trying to incorporate some of that excitement into One Global? Well, look, I mean, InsureTech, I think, has had a little bit of a checkered start. I think it's probably fair to say. And so Lemonade is obviously, at this point in time, a, a resounding success. And, you know, I think their timing in terms of hitting the market at a point in time where I think the market needed a little excitement was good. But there also have been, you know, a lot of failed ventures in InsureTech. And so... To my mind, what's important about InsureTech is it's an area we do need to focus on. We've got to be very selective as to what is going to be successful and what is not. And I I saw that in my time at JLT Re. We probably screened, you know, 10 to 15 InsureTech ventures uh, a week, mainly out of our West Coast of the U.S. office, which was very, very progressive in that area. But we ended up supporting, you know, two or three, and they've been pretty successful. So to my mind, it's about being selective in InsureTech. It is the future for sure. And so again, if it's going to bring something to our client base, we've got to be all over it. We've got to make sure that we invest in it. But we've also got to be very selective and very smart about how we play in that space. I think the good news for us, Mark, is we're not encumbered as a broker with lots of legacy systems and lots of you know, legacy processing, etc. We've been a relatively small London wholesale broker, I think, as you pointed out at the start of the call. And so building from here, we can take advantage of technology, we can take advantage of insure tech, again, for the benefit of our clients all the time. But we really feel that that is an area that provides a lot of opportunity for us to grow. I think it would be wrong of me to have an interview with you at this time without asking a bit about COVID-19. So what do you think the main insurance lessons, insurance business lessons have been from COVID-19 crisis so far? I think on the policy side, I think we're all learning that policies and wordings need to be much clearer, that the market needs to be more coherent in its response to clients. We have, of course, learned, as I said earlier, that electronic trading works. So we finally learned that lesson, which is fantastic. We also learned, I think, that flexibility for our people and for great talent works quite well. So do we need all these expensive offices sitting in the center of London? Can we find a way to work together in a much more cohesive fashion that is more flexible for our people and still manages to service our client base in the right way? And I think, you know, we're all starting to think that uh, that's something that we can certainly do. The one thing that I did learn on a personal basis is actually as a smaller company, when I showed up on day one, 14th of April, as the new CEO working from home, I expected that we might be a little bit all over the place in terms of how we communicate, but it's been absolutely seamless. Great IT structures, great systems, uh, great team camaraderie and communication between the teams. And so from that point of view, I've learned a very valuable lesson, which is that we don't all have to sit in the center of London every day looking at each other to do a great job for our clients. And in terms of how we're doing as an industry, what would be your report card? Is the sector going to come out of COVID-19 with its reputation enhanced or diminished? Um, Look, I think um, 
I suppose there's two aspects to it. So one, I would say that the bubbling issues around policy wordings and around policy response to business interruption claims and COVID issues has, I think, put some questions over the industry. I think hopefully we're moving with the FCA test case there to resolving those issues. And I would hope that the industry would step up itself and really realize that it is incumbent on us as an industry to make sure that we can respond to such a major catastrophe in a way. So that's, I think, the slightly negative aspect of things. But I think on the positive side, I don't think the industry has really missed a beat in terms of responding to clients. From what I've seen, business has continued to be carried on day to day. Clients have continued to be served on a very robust basis. And really, I think the lack of complaints in the system, if you like, in terms of how things have operated is a real credit to our people and to our industry. So from that point of view, I think the industry has come out very, very well out of it. And look, you know, there's no doubt that the COVID situation is going to change the industry in many ways. We talked about some of the operational ways that it might change the industry. But obviously, you've got a lot of very challenged insurance markets right now. And you've got a lot of push on pricing and terms and conditions. And great brokers, I think, will get out there and prove their worth to their client base in a market like that. So I'm excited for the future. I think it's the industry as a whole has weathered the storm pretty well, but now is going to be the time where we really need to step up for clients. And One Global will certainly be on a war path to make sure that we do that. Well, Mike, I mean, it seems the stars are all aligned and you must be very, very busy. So I won't take up any more of your time. But before I go, just thank you so much for giving us some of that very valuable time and hope you'll come on and speak to us again one day. Great. Thank you, Mark. And uh, good luck with everything. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>